0: So if you're joining us for the first time, you may not realize that we are in a series that has kind of a back-to-the-classroom feel. We're talking about covenant, lessons for families, blackboard, notes, um, maybe a quiz here and there, assignments, and we've been trying to outline and unpack the realities of a theological model for family relationships uh, drawn from Jack and Judith Balswick. So we're going to start with a quiz this morning, and it's just going to be a verbal one. I'm not going to have you go to your phones just to save a little bit of time. But there are four theological themes that run throughout this model, the first of which is class, class, four theological themes, the first of which is covenant. Beautiful. So somebody has been listening. All right, so covenant. The second theme is grace. Absolutely right. The third one is empowerment. You're with me so far. And then finally, the last one is intimacy. Exactly right. That these are descriptive of the way that God interacts with his family, the way God treats his family. And if we experience that in our relationship as members of God's family, then we then seek to carry that out in our families. Our question today is, what is the next step? So we have theological themes, but we live pragmatic lives. So how do these themes express themselves? How do they play themselves out in the life of a family? I'm going to give you a quick road map of some of where we'll be going in the coming weeks, including today. Now, understand what happens in the coming weeks is going to be a little bit like a bus tour. There will be some destinations where we stop, we all get off the bus, and we wander around and we take it all in and we understand it well before we get on the bus and leave. Other ones will say, friends, we're going to slow down, we're going to take a look at this, and then we're moving on. So there will be some elements of both. But the question is, how does, for example, covenant play itself out in your family in mine if covenant is present. One of the best ways, this is suggested by the Balswick, not all of these are, but this one is, is in the area of commitment. Commitment. So that commitment is expressive. The depth, the level, the kind of commitment is expressive of our experience of covenant as a family. Grace. Where does grace express itself? Well, we've already mentioned one when we talked about this before, and that's in the area of forgiveness. The ability to say, I forgive you and mean it and live it is expressive of a grace in the heart. But it's not the only way. Maybe flexibility is another way in which grace expresses itself. Because after all, isn't it true that grace-based people forgive, whereas law-based people tend to retaliate? Isn't it true that grace-based people tend to be flexible, whereas law-based people tend to be rigid? So maybe those are two places where grace expresses itself. And then what about empowerment? Could it be that the best place to look for how we do empowerment is in the area of authority? How is authority managed? How is it handled in any given family? Do parents empower their kids by allowing them to make their own decisions more and more as they grow older, becoming in a healthy way their own authority for life, having agency and accountability? And what about spouses? Don't truly empowering spouses grant authority to each other to grow and to decide and to change and to develop? And if we're not empowering, then we fight over authority. It's mine. No, it's mine. So that maybe authority is maybe the best place to look for empowerment. And then finally, intimacy. How do we measure whether or not intimacy is present? Now much in the culture today would say you look into the bedroom to see if intimacy is present. You look into the sexuality of a couple. And there are some good reasons to say that. But it's not the best indicator of intimacy. In fact, I think the best indicator of intimacy is communication. Communication, when you know what's in each other's hearts, when you're able to hear each other. That is truly intimate. So as we move ahead, in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of these realities, some just from the window of the bus, some getting off the bus and spending some time there, such as today as we start with covenant. Covenant expressing itself in commitment. So I want to share with you something that I believe about us as human beings. You may differ, but I think I have some evidence for it. I think that for us as human beings, one of the deepest desires, in fact, one of the deepest needs of our souls, is the need to be loved, to be truly loved. To be loved when we are who we are, when we are authentically ourselves, to be loved at that point in time, fully and completely. I think one of the places where you can see this indicated is in our music. Go back and look at the hits on the pop charts throughout any decade, any set of years, and you'll find, I think, that the thing about which we sing the most without a very close second is love. Love desired, love expressed, love yearned for, love unrequited, love broken. All of the realities of love. We we, we sing about it all the time. In fact, I can remember the year I graduated from college. uh, The popular song on the charts that year was Endless Love by Diana Ross. Anybody here remember that? Endless Love. You know, it it hit us at a very emotional time in our lives. You go out on a date and listen to endless love and cry, and then go back the next day and break up, you know. It was a really really quite an ironic kind of experience. Uh, Singing about endless love. Or a few years later, a woman who seemed not much bigger than, she was just so slender, named Whitney Houston. And yet when she opened her mouth, you said, where's that voice coming from? As she sang what? I will always love you. It speaks to that deep, yearning desire in the heart to be loved, to be real, authentic with who I am and still be loved. Profound. I would contend that God designed us that way, wove it into the fabric of our DNA. And then he says, friends, if you're in my family, that's the love you get unconditional love, fully given to you, knowing who you are. Now, we could go many places in Scripture to find evidence for that. I'm going to take you to one of my favorites, John, the 13th chapter. It is the night before Christ's crucifixion. Jerusalem is pregnant with pilgrims. Some estimate that as many as one to two million people came into town for the Passover celebration. Jesus is, as Fred Craddock put it, curling his toes over the edge of eternity. He's facing death in the face. And this is the preamble to that night that John writes, one verse long. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew this was the time. His hour, his time, has been a continuing theme through the the gospel of John. Not my time, not my time, not my time. Now the time has arrived. And then notice the next sentence. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. To the last drop of life, the last gasp of air, he loved them to the end endless love. Now, some of your Bibles will have a footnote there that will note that there is another way that last phrase can be translated. Was John being intentionally ambiguous? Because both of these are fair translations. The other way it can be translated is having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He says, watch what happens next, and you will know the full extent of this unconditional love that undergirds the covenant with my family. And what is that? It is a commitment that leads him to a place called Calvary. Golgotha. That's his commitment. That's how he lives out the reality of his unconditional love. Commitment. So when we have experienced his commitment to us, now the question becomes, can we live this out and express it in our lives and in our families? Now that's tough when it comes to commitment. You don't need me to tell you, but I'm going to anyway, that we live in a commitment-phobic society. Nobody wants to make a commitment, especially not too quickly, in all kinds of ways. Commitment-phobic society. In fact, I, on my computer, I just decided to type in commitment in, on the dictionary in my computer and see how that dictionary would define the word commitment. It gave it two definitions, the second one of which interested me most. Here is how it defined it. Commitment is an engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. Commitment is an obligation or engagement that restricts freedom of action. In other words, the way we would say it here plainly and simply is that commitment whoops. commitment costs It costs. No wonder we don't want to commit. What does it cost? It costs other options. We live in a world with a plethora of options. I was curious because somebody had told me, you know, there's an amazing amount, amazing number of shampoos available. So I thought of that. I remember that this week. I went on my Google search bar and typed in how many shampoos are available. One of the websites, one of the hits I got, I don't know if this is true or not, And they're not all different brands because there's different kinds of shampoo under each brand. But one of the websites I got said Walmart stocks or makes available, if you order online, 500 different kinds of shampoo. 500. No wonder we're paralyzed about making choices and making commitments. So if I, go to, if I go to Walmart and I need to get shampoo and I look and there's two options, men's or women's, or there's long hair or short hair, or there's dandruff or no dandruff, whatever they have in shampoo, not a problem. I just grab the one I want and off I'm out the door. Or like Henry Ford is reputed to have said, you can get this car in any color you want it as long as it's black. You know? <laughs> Life is easy when that happens. But when you've got a drop-down menu with 500 options... You say, I can't decide because I'm cutting off 499 other options. And so we hold back. I wanna keep my options open. I wanna be careful about what I commit to. Now, we've had the wonderful privilege of being here on the Loma Linda University campus for a lot of years, 35 years in fact. And during that time, I've had the immense privilege to interact with students, hundreds, thousands of them, in the classroom and counseling settings, etc., And I have noticed something interesting about Loma Linda. Students will come here. Single students will come here wanting to get a degree and wanting to get a... Anyway, you kind of get the picture. And they will sit down in an office and say, this place is brutal. What do you mean? You, no, nobody wants to commit. Why not? Because there are so many options. Nobody wants to commit. Because what did our definition say? It's an engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. In other words, once you get married, probably not a good idea to date around. It restricts that freedom of action. And so people are saying, well, I need to find out before. Nothing wrong with that until you're trying to select between 500 brands of shampoo. (laughs) Then it becomes a problem. How do I make that decision, and how do I finally decide I'm going to commit, and what will that commitment look like as it lives itself out in the life of a marriage? Commitment costs. Now, we've talked a fair bit about the balls, because I'm going to talk to you today about Scott Stanley. Scott Stanley and Howard Markman are family and marriage researchers at the University of Denver. Scott Stanley is a committed Christian. Howard Markman is a Jewish person. And so they take their research, and Markman writes to a Christian audience on the popular level. And, pardon me, Stanley writes to a Christian audience on the popular level. And Markman writes to a Jewish audience on a popular level, besides their academic writing. It's been interesting to see some of the things that they have found. So one of the things that they point out, which is by far not unique to them, is that marriage is getting further and further postponed in people's lives, later and later. As that happens, the incidence of cohabitation continues to rise. Cohabitation, all right, there we go. Continues to rise. As it rises, researchers are asking questions about cohabitation and marriage. How do they compare? What are the differences between them? And what are the outcomes? And are the outcomes positive or negative in each case, etc.? Cohabitation continues to rise. There have been some interesting findings. Interesting things like for couples who cohabit and then marry, their adjustment to marriage in the first year is better than those who have not cohabited. But after the first year, their satisfaction and the health of the marriage declines. While those who did not cohabit before, it increases in many cases. Interesting finding. But one of the ways Stanley applies the research is this. Two terms that he coined, sliding, sliding versus deciding. Sliding versus deciding. So here's what Stanley says. He says, we are now in an age where people in their relationships tend to slide into things rather than decide to step into them. And we have pretty much put away a lot of the markers of what it means to move from one stage to another. For some of you, when you were in high school, I mean, she wore his letterman jacket or whatever or, I don't know, promise rings, other kinds of things. A lot of that has gone by the wayside. So Stanley says people tend to slide. From being friends, they kind of slide into seeing each other. And from seeing each other, they kind of slide into being just exclusive. And from that, they tend to slide into an apartment together. And from that, maybe, they tend to slide into marriage. Not making clear, definitive decisions along the way, but just sliding. On the other hand, he says, are those who decide, who make intentional, thoughtful, and in the case of a person for whom Jesus is important, prayerful decisions along the way. And that the research indicates that those who are deciding along the way ultimately are in much better condition, much happier, much more satisfied in their relationships than those who have merely been sliding along the way. Does that make sense? Which calls for making decisions about commitment. The very kind of thing a lot of people don't want to do. In fact, I would suggest to you that a lot of what leads to this is a mindset that says, "It's just a piece of paper. Just a piece of pa- that what really matters is the love we have for each other. It's just a piece of paper." So I'm curious. I don't mean this in a sarcastic way. I mean it in a real way. Suppose you land at LAX from an international flight and you get in one of those long lines that leads you up to the customs agent who says to you, your passport, and you say to him, it's just a piece of paper. I mean, look at me. I'm American. I speak English. I belong here. It's just a piece of paper. My heart loves this country. You know, hey, whatever you want to say. I pledge allegiance. Or the cop pulls you over. License, evidence of insurance, please. Officer, it's just a piece of paper. I mean, come on, did you see how I was driving? I'm a good driver. Would you drive this car without insurance? Of course I got insurance. It's just a piece of paper, officer. You get interviewed for a job. You want to be a marriage and family therapist at a clinic. What's your license number? Look, look, please. People have told me all my life that I'm great at listening and I have great advice to give to people. I'm excellent at it. Who needs a license? It's my gift. My, spirits, my church told me that. <laughs> because the reality is, in no case is it just a piece of paper. It's everything that is behind that. Socially, legally, in the family, religiously, in the community. It's all the realities that go into that that create value in whatever field or commitment you're making. People say, but wait a minute. It may not work out. I mean, it, it I see too many marriages where they're not even happy about it. Granted. Granted which ought to put some onus on us as followers of Jesus to have this kind of covenantal love pervade and permeate our families and our marriages. So what about that commitment? Again, to appeal to Stanley. Stanley talks about two kinds of commitment in probably two kinds of commitment in any kind of endeavor, but certainly including marriage and family. One that he calls dedication commitment and one that he calls constraint commitment. Dedication commitment and constraint commitment. And I'd like you to get a feel for this from his own words. So from the book, The Power of Commitment, listen as he discusses this. He says, what are the ways in which commitment is expressed in the warp and woof of a life together? Consider these two statements and what is reflected in each. Statement one. Mary sure is committed to that project. Statement two. Bob committed to that project. He can't back out now. (laughs) Two statements. The different kinds of commitment reflected in these two statements, says Stanley, profoundly affect your marriage. In the terms I use in my work, the first statement Remember that? Mary sure is committed to that project. The first statement reflects commitment as dedication. Commitment as dedication. Dedication implies an internal state of, devo- state of devotion to a person or a project. It conveys the sense of a forward-moving, motivating force, one based on thoughtful decisions you have made to give it your best effort. Does that makes sense? That's dedication commitment. Constraint, writes Stanley, entails a sense of obligation. It refers to factors that would be costs if the present course were abandoned. Whereas dedication is a force drawing you forward, constraint is a force pushing you from behind. I'm obligated to do this. When you combine the two, it's like epoxy glue. Mixing the two components gives married couples a super strong bond. In other words, dedication and constraint are a part of any meaningful commitment we make, including marriage. If you go into marriage expecting only dedication kinds of experiences, you're going to be overwhelmed with questions about whether or not you're right for each other because you find that there's more to it than that. But if your marriage is only constraint, well, listen to Stanley. Research has shown that couples who maintain and act on dedication are more connected, happier, and more open with each other. That's because the partners show their commitment in many ways. Those who lose dedication and have only constraints will either be together but miserable or come apart. Now notice again, Both of these are elements in a marriage. If you're in a marriage where you have contributed to it, you have nurtured it, you have grown it, you're experiencing the kind of covenantal love that God expresses to his family, that does not take away the constraints You still have the constraints, obligation to spouse, obligation to children, obligation to community or whatever else there is. That's still there, but when this is the kind of love you experience, that doesn't really matter. However, when the love has died, these can become overwhelming become all you can see. They're both present in healthy marriages, and they both are likely but certainly constrained as present in marriages that struggle. So what do we do? How can we help address some of those realities? One more piece from Stanley. Stanley says, when it comes to making commitments and living out those commitments in marriage, It is utterly important that marriage partners feel safe. Safe. Now, one way that that safety is key is physical safety. If you feel threatened, intimidated, if you have been harmed, there is no way you can work on a marriage. If that describes you today, please leave this place to get help to leave that situation. You cannot live in the context of something where you are physically afraid. Reach out to us as pastors. Reach out to a a Christian counselor, but get help. That's a fundamental underlying way. But there are two other ways that Stanley says we need to feel safe if our commitments are going to be healthy and grow. One of them is we need to feel safe in what he calls the connection. The connection. What does he mean by that? He means that experience that two people have when they sit and talk and share with each other, open up their hearts and lives to each other and feel safe in doing so. And as a result of that, they grow healthy and strong. They experience joy in their connection. It is deeply meaningful. That is a reality that many of us, married or single, long for. Long for. However, there's another safety that helps determine whether or not that's going to happen long term. And that's a safety in what Stanley calls the commitment. And what he means by that is as you look at this person to whom you are married, you look at a person that you are not afraid is going to leave you, going to walk out the door, going to abandon you. You realize we have a future together. We're both on board. We're both contributing. I'm safe in this commitment. And Stanley says, it is only in a longer-term relationship as we feel the safety of that commitment that we then can come to know the joy and safety of the connection. Because if we have questions, is my spouse going to leave? Is he cheating on me again? That shuts down anything connection-wise. We cannot be intimate with somebody we're afraid is about to walk out the door. So commitment undergirds it all. And yet, commitment costs, and that makes us commitment-phobic. In fact, New York Times, just in case you're wondering, not a religious journal, Modern Love College Essay Contest may have 2017, one of the finalists, college senior Lauren Peterson. Ms. Lauren Peterson met Michael on a dating app where women make the first move. She wasn't looking for a relationship, let alone for love. She wrote, everything about us was temporary. We would talk a little, watch a little, and then go to bed. In the morning, I would zip up my coat while he asked. Heading out, I would nod and say, thanks for the toast. There was a rhythm to it. Monday night, pack my bag. Tuesday morning, walk home. Then she broke the rules. She expressed that she wanted something more. She writes, I started daydreaming about how the moonlight trickled in while he played me his jazz records, how he chuckled and buried his face in his hands after I explained my odd internships and how he held up a picture of his family and described each of his brothers. For a second, my future brimmed with Michael. His records, his quiet demeanor, but abrasive sense of humor, his shamelessness in recounting the time he was struck with food poisoning at a hostel in San Francisco. I wanted more. She texted him, and then she writes, Then another text appeared. It's just that I'm apprehensive about the commitment. When I clarified that I didn't expect a long-term commitment with our coming graduation, he expressed his real concern in one word, monogamy. I wanted to leave the game behind and develop something special with Michael, if only for a short time. Yet Michael hesitated. It struck me that the fling was dead. She concludes on a sad note. A A mere six weeks after our first date, we were over. I'd broken the rules. My glimmer of expressed affection had led to a fatal imbalance in the game. Feeling a little dispensable, I opened Bumble to pause my account. A notification flash indicated that I had been right-swiped by a few people. 1946 to be exact. As the saying goes, there are plenty of fish in the sea, and it turned out that my sea held 1,946 of them. The play again button glowed brighter than ever. And yet, almost comically, I wanted to date only one particular person. It's curious, isn't it? It has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with God. Because there is in the human heart a desire to be loved, to be loved to the core of our beings, to be loved in a way that is not temporary or uncertain or will walk out the door in the morning. There's a desire to be loved in a way that expresses commitment, deep and full commitment. Commitment captured in words like greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. That kind of committed love The human heart yearns for that. And then we come to God and in his family, we experience that. We see it in the pen of a man named John who says, he showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them to the very end. That's our family. This community, we are but one small local expression of the family of God who is blessed with that kind of love eternally blessed now the question becomes can we love our families in return because while it is true that commitment costs I also have to tell you that it is even more true that commitment pays commitment pays rich dividends Commitment pays intimacy and security and companionship and the ability to rest at peace in a relationship. It pays deeply. So I have an assignment for you before class next week. First of all, just a reminder, this afternoon, 4 p.m., Dr. Barbara Hernandez talking about accountability and forgiveness in these kinds of relationships. You won't want to miss it in the new building. But your assignment, three parts to it, simple parts, want to ask you to do between now and when we meet next week. Assignment number one. Say thank you. Say thank you to a person in your life. Could be a parent, could be a child, could be a sibling, could be a spouse. Say thank you to a person in your life who stayed with you through the times of constraint. When it was dry and dusty and a desert, when you wondered if you were going to make it, and yet they were there, they stayed with you, say thank you to them. You stayed with me through those times, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. Thank you. That's the first one. Say thank you. Second one, with somebody. Parent, child, sibling, spouse. This week, take one act, make one choice to act in some way that expresses that dedication kind of commitment. Go on a long walk and talk, sit and hold hands while you watch a favorite show. Go down and watch the sunset on the beach. Or if you can do it financially, go spend a weekend away together. But do something this week that feeds, that nurtures the dedication kind of commitment either in your family or in your marriage. Say thank you. Take one dedication act. And the third one, say thank you. Say thank you to the one who has loved you with an everlasting love, whose covenant commitment to you was best shown at Calvary, say thank you to him and say, please, let me live in the overflow of that love that I might then be able to share that with the people who mean the most to me. Say thank you, act in a dedication way, and say thank you. In fact, let's say thank you right now. God of grace, when we consider your love, when we consider the cross, all we can say is thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.